0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop after this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab-tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Network's
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and happy to be here. So glad that you could join us today. We are living in a very strange time in history that harkens back to the 1930s. I can't recall any other period in our generation when false propaganda has had so much power over public opinion. It seems people are hanging on for dear life to any sensationalist reporting that validates their own bias on any controversial issue, even when science or factual events contradict their beliefs. Nowhere is this more evident than in the battle of beliefs about cannabis. The more I learn about the incredible medical, economic, and environmental benefits, the more I'm determined to set the record straight whenever I hear anyone regurgitating egregious lies that were embedded in our collective psyche since Reaper Madness in 1937. It's even more disturbing to hear the same falsehood spewing forth from self-proclaimed experts who refuse to let go of their opinions even when confronted with cold, hard facts. I can understand the anti-marijuana sentiment of people who came of age during Reefer Madness or the start of the war on drugs in the Nixon era, but it really baffles me to see young adults joining ranks with the prohibition loyalists considering that they were never subjected to the relentless false rhetoric and were raised in the dawn of the pro-cannabis movement. It's even more baffling to hear medical professionals defend the use of toxic synthetic pharmaceuticals for treating conditions that science has already shown cannabis to treat as effectively without the dangerous side effects. Last night while I was doing some research I stumbled upon a Facebook thread initiated by a young mother who was actually one of the first guests on this show. For background her severely disabled young daughter nearly lost her life when pharmaceutical drugs not only failed to work they actually made her condition worse. When a friend suggested cannabis she took her daughter to Oregon where for the first time since birth her daughter's condition actually improved. Despite the fact that cannabis saved her precious daughter's life, Child Protective Services threatened to take her daughter away as soon as she returned to Utah. So, long story short, they wound up moving to Oregon near a town called Cresswell. What caught my eye last night was a letter to the editor of the Cresswell Chronicle that she shared about a ballot measure asking voters to decide whether a dispensary should be allowed in their town. The letter was written by a nurse who appeared to claim that 20 years as a nurse made him an authority on the issue. About his eight years working in a large trauma center, he wrote, In all that time there was never an instance when we were unable to treat pain, nausea or vomiting with standard conventional drugs. And about his four years in forensic medicine at a state institution, he explained that his patients were child molesters and rapists whose drug abuse began with marijuana. His letter urged the citizens of Cresswell not to succumb to marijuana, which he insisted is a very dangerous, hypotonic, hallucinogenic gateway drug. I wound up reading a number of articles about the controversy in the Cresswell newspaper and was struck by the seeming mob mentality of the anti-cannabis contingency there. I find it especially disturbing how ignorance fosters fear and contempt. I can't help but wonder how many of the nurse's patients actually died from the so-called dangerous drug he referred to, versus how many of his patients died as a result of treating pain, nausea, and vomiting with standard conventional pharmaceutical drugs in his 20 years as a nurse. I wonder if he knows that prescription opiates are the gateway drug and that cannabis is actually an exit drug. That is the topic of today's show and something our guest knows a lot about. But first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner?
2: Thank you, Snowden. Prescription drug and opiate overdose has become a leading cause of death here in the United States. Nowhere is the magnitude of the problem more obvious than what I encounter on a weekly basis in the emergency department. As I've said before, I can't make it through a single shift without seeing a patient who has overdosed on an opiate-related medication. It was encouraging to see that the president has established a commission to address the opiate crisis in our country. But, while the announcement came as good news, I was disappointed to learn that cannabis has no representation on the commission, even though it provides a safe and effective alternative for opiate pain management. What is more disturbing to me is that every one of the commissioners has publicly expressed strong opposition to marijuana for any purpose at all. From a purely medical perspective, I believe this is a mistake. We now have plenty of evidence that medical marijuana is far safer than opiates when used regularly for chronic pain, and it can absolutely be just as effective. More importantly, we are finding that cannabinoids help to curb addiction to opiates and often relieve the discomfort associated with acute opiate withdrawal. These are not just theories. Clinical studies conducted in Europe, South America, Australia, and currently Canada have drawn similar conclusions. While large-scale human trials on the medical effects of cannabis on humans are slow to develop in the U.S. because of regulatory issues, there is evidence derived from animal studies conducted here in the U.S. in support of this issue. Clinicians in states that now regulate cannabis have begun to conduct their own research. For example, last month, the chief medical officer of Hello MD surveyed nearly 3,000 patients who have used opiates and or medical marijuana for pain. Respondents overwhelmingly reported that, quote, Cannabis provided relief on par with their other medications, but without the unwanted side effects. 97% of the sample agreed or strongly agreed that they were able to decrease the amount of opiates they consume when they also used cannabis. And 81% agree or strongly agreed that taking cannabis by itself was more effective at treating their condition than taking cannabis with opioids. If we want to get serious about ending the opioid crisis, we need to examine all possible solutions, including those which cannabis that can provide. In my opinion, medical experts who are well-versed in the use of cannabis as an alternative for opiate medication should have a seat at the table at the President's Commission on the Opiate Crisis. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for The Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden.
1: Thank you, Dr. Donner. So if you'd like to see more of Dr. Donner's Medical Marijuana Minutes, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. So let's get started. I am really happy to reintroduce Dr. Gina Berman, who has been on this show before, sometime in January or end of last year. She was an ER physician at a Phoenix area hospital for close to a decade where she treated trauma patients, drug seekers, and everything in between. Frustrated by the adverse effects of highly addictive opiates, administered too often for pain, she hung up her stethoscope to explore her true passion, alternative therapies, including cannabis. Today, she is a noted expert on the subject of treating opiate addiction with cannabis, and she partnered with a woman by the name of Lilac Powers is co-founder of the Giving Tree Wellness Center and is now fully entrenched after launching a holistic treatment center called Blue Door. So thank you so much, Dr. Berman, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hi, being thank you for having here. me. <laughs> I am so excited to hear that the Blue Door is open because you were just about to launch it the last time you were on this show. How's it going over there?
3: It's going well. It's difficult to get into the physicians offices and educate physicians we're we're going office by office one by one and sitting down with physicians and talking to them about the patient population that they're struggling we really feel like we have some good solutions for and despite that we've sat down with a lot of doctors who said never never We haven't had any physician leave the table and say, never, never. They at least will say, well, let's try one patient and see how we do. So we're making inroads. It's slow work, um, but it's great work, and and we're happy to be able to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? It's Like I was saying in this opening, it just seems as though people just have a hard time letting go of whatever it is that they learned about cannabis early in their lives. And Mm -hmm. it seems that doctors tend to be uh, no different. I mean, you know, medical school is supposed to make you an expert on all things health. Right. And so since medical schools don't really teach much at all, if anything, about cannabis, it, it just seems like it's a hard sell for people who really haven't learned about it yet. Do you find that? It
3: is. It's difficult because there isn't education um, in a traditional format for these physicians. And physicians really like to practice evidence-based medicine. It really goes hand-in-hand with the Hippocratic Oath of First Do No Harm. So they want to make sure that what they're going to do for their patient is not going to be harmful for them. So I've compiled a binder of research articles to help give them some background and something to really lean on. I don't think physicians are against cannabis per se, but they really just need that educational component and some evidence that what their treatment they're recommending or a referral that they're recommending is is not going to harm the patient and that there is some substance behind what the treatment modality is going to look like. So that's been really helpful that we have some pretty compelling research to share with them. The other thing about physicians is that they don't have a lot of time. They already have to see patients every five minutes. And they have continuing education they have to do anyway. And it's just one more thing. We try to spoon feed it, make it easy as possible for them.
1: Yeah. And once they do get their hands on some science that, that shows them in language they can understand, it seems as though a lot of doctors are really starting to open up to this. They are. And, and little by
3: little, we're getting those referrals. We're getting clinicians to allow their patients to be on both opioids and cannabinoids at the same time for for. A defined period of time. Um, they're uncomfortable with with patients being on both, and I, hopefully that will also change.
1: Yeah. Well, you've you've made some pretty compelling presentations regarding opiates and the treatment of opiate addiction with cannabis as an exit drug for people who just aren't familiar with that. Um, maybe if you could just explain a little bit of background about why you believe this works and how you Came to realize it.
3: Well, I'll start with the last part first because that's kind of how I got to where I am. Is so I was an ER doctor for, for a decade at, at St. Joe's, and I was a resident before that, and a medical student before that. So I'd had probably about 20 years there of uh, clinical experience, and it um, uh, never really ran into cannabis. And the opioid epidemic blossomed when you know through my career. So. Um, I left the emergency room to be the medical director of a dispensary and I actually do see patients there and I counsel patients and whatever their concerns were, that was my job to do research on it and to give them some information. I saw more and more patients coming in who were trying to get off narcotics using cannabis and it became a trend. So I talked to our patient consultants who see more patients than I do and they said, yeah, this is definitely something that we're seeing. So I dove into the research and looked at is there, any, is there any substance behind this? Is there anything to substantiate on an anatomic level what these patients are finding? And I found that there was. And the way that it is helpful is that the mu receptor, which is the receptor for opioids, runs along in parallel with um, the cannabinoid receptor CB1 in the central nervous system, which is the receptor for THC. And so then it makes a lot of sense that if those two receptors have the same outcome, meaning blocking a signal, they block pain signal, then it doesn't take a huge leap of the imagination to say, well, if I'm going to add on something that's doing the same thing, I'm going to either have better pain control, better blockage of that signal, or I can decrease the amount of the other medication that I'm taking to get the same effect. And then when you look at the research, it shows that when you add cannabis to a traditional treatment program, that involves opioids, patients decrease their opioid use or eliminate their opi- opioid use in a very significant manner. And the importance of this is that there are so many side effects to opioids that you don't find with cannabis that it is a, um, at least a harm reduction and a safer option for those patients. Then when you look at how could cannabis be helpful for withdrawal symptoms, let's say you have somebody who just wants to get off of opioids. Well, it makes sense, again, because THC is kind of a weak opioid, like it functions kind of like a weak opioid. And then when you look at cannabidiol and how that can help with cravings, and there's, there are several research papers out there on how cannabidiol can help with cravings, you can begin to put together the picture of, okay, well, when the patient is going through acute withdrawal, that's quote unquote that opioid with a weak acting op- type opioid, which is actually a cannabinoid via a different receptor. And then in chronic withdrawal, which is called PAUSE, there's an acronym, an acronym called PAUSE, which is post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which goes on for a very long time. And using cannabidiol makes a lot of sense there because there's research to support that. So that's kind of how I got to cannabis for the treatment of um, pain instead of opioids or in addition to opioids, and then also cannabis for the treatment of acute and chronic withdrawal symptoms.
1: Wow. You know, I, I think that's really interesting that working in tandem, both the opioids and the cannabis tend to solve the problem faster. But at the end of the day, the the use of cannabis along with it means that when the pain does go away, they're not having those cravings. That's basically just in short what you just said. Is that correct? Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. And cravings are very important. And acute, uh, post-acute withdrawal syndrome is much more deadly than acute withdrawal because that's when people have cravings and they relapse. And relapse is a, a great predictor of overdose and death. So if we really want to look at an outcome of decreasing death from opioid overdose, then you really need to focus on the, um, the post-acute withdrawal syndrome.
1: Yeah. So are you
3: also as well,
1: right? And so mm-hmm. are you also when you're when you're talking with physicians about this to try to get them on board with uh, directing their patients towards seeking this alternative treatment? Are you also talking with individuals in the sort of institutional treatment centers so that they can understand why this might be important to the people who are in their clinics or in their inpatient treatment centers?
3: We have reached out to traditional addiction uh, rehab type places, inpatient um, rehab, because it's important for those patients to have a resource and an outlet when they're done with their, however much their insurance will pay for, which is how long they will stay inpatient. (laughs) Right. So once those patients leave the inpatient setting, they need to continue outpatient treatment and we want to be a resource for those patients in the outpatient setting also. So we are connecting with those inpatient facilities.
1: And are you getting any pushback?
3: Yes, there is a really big concern for the use of cannabis and, and uh, a very sensitive uh, patient who is going through addiction uh, rehab. And not all patients who are um, physically dependent on opioids are addicted. Um, there is a spectrum of use substance use disorder that can be anything from you take an extra pill that your physician has prescribed to, you're on the street and injecting heroin. And those patients are different patients. Neuro, neurochemically, they're different patients. And you have to be very careful with using a chemical that can um, engage the rewards and, uh areas of the brain when a patient is so um, fresh and sensitive. And so for those patients, we focus very, very heavily on CBD.
1: Right. And because CBD is what really reduces the cravings, how did the, mm-hmm. With CBD, the difference between CBD and THC when it comes to weaning someone off of, of uh, opiates, the mm. role of CBD is more about the craving than satisfying that pain response or blocking the pain response. I'm trying to kind of understand in layman's terms how you would explain that.
3: So there's the acute withdrawal, which is your body rejecting, not having what it had been given for so long. So there's this taking of um, opioids that when you take it away, the body is like, wait a minute, I I'm, I've built up a system around accepting the stuff and now you took it away. And, and the symptoms from that are shaking, nausea, insomnia, ringing in the ears, vomiting. It's very painful um, it's excruciating. Patients think they're going to die. They're not going to, but they think they're going to die. And um, it, it is very dramatic. And THC can be helpful for acute withdrawal because it can substitute for that opioid. It's not going to be as strong as an opioid, but it can help with all of the symptoms, almost all of the symptoms of withdrawal. So THC, I see in terms of opioid um, Youth disorder and in terms of withdrawal, acute withdrawal and chronic withdrawal, THC is most useful in that acute phase. If somebody's just going to go cold turkey off of opioids, THC can be very helpful to get them through that process more humanely. Right. Then, once they've gotten through the acute, dramatic, I feel like I'm going to die, then you get into post acute withdrawal, in which case THC isn't necessarily going to be have as dramatic of an effect or an impact on that stage. And that's where you really need to pay attention to um, the patient's hormonal function, the patient's sleep, um, depression, etc. And CBD is very helpful in terms of helping with um, cravings, anxiety, um, and some residual pain that patients may have from whenever they started using opioids in the first place.
1: Yeah. Does that? That, that does. That helps to clarify it. And, you know, there are, there are a number of states in which, uh, opiate opiate abuse and addiction are becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, it's neighbors, grandmas, uh, sons, daughters. I mean, people are just being affected by it left and right. And mm-hmm. with restrictions on the amount of prescriptions that are allowed, they tend to be gravitating toward street versions or even heroin and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of these places, cannabis has not been legalized yet. Do you, do you think that for people living in those states ordering uh, CBD tinctures, which are legal to purchase online and uh, from just about anywhere in the United States, is that, is that something that people should consider for that acute withdrawal as well? I mean, is it going to help them or do they really just need to go to a rehab facility in a legal state?
3: Well, people have been withdrawing from opioids without cannabis, uh, you know, as long as people have been drawing from opioids. Right. Um, so it can be done without THD. It's just more humane. CBD will probably help a little bit. Um, the exact mechanism of action of CBD is not as clear as THD because THD directly engages the CB1 receptor. And so um, you know what it does. It's very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so CBD could help definitely could help. It, there's a thought that it helps keep the endogenous opi- uh, cannabinoids in the receptor space for longer, which means they can have more of an, an action that they normally would, um, in addition to a bunch of other things that it does. So it could help.
1: Yeah, because it's it's such an insidious problem. I was reading some statistics the other day. 200,000 people, as of uh, the end of last year, 200, 000, nearly 200,000 people had died as a result of an opiate overdose since 2000 and uh, just the year 2000 Mm -hmm. and I mean that's just a staggering statistic something Mm -hmm. else too I wanted to get your thoughts on um, I'm sure you're aware of the President's Council on on opiate abuse uh, that Mm -hmm. is looking into this crisis this national crisis not a single person that I and I looked into everyone who's on that commission not a single person is is in favor of cannabis as an alternative treatment. Um, a lot of them are actually staunch opponents and have been very vocal about op- opposing marijuana regulation for medical or adult use. Uh,
3: mm-hmm. What would you tell them? I would tell them to look at the research and look at their own government's research. Um, if they if their goal is to stop opioid overdose deaths, cannabis is a clear and compelling uh, component to add to their treatment regimen. There are now three studies that have, you know, are validating each other in terms of showing that availability of cannabis decreases opioid overdose deaths. The first was in 2014 by the Journal of the American Medical Association. The second was a paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research, funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and that was in 2015. And a third one just came out. It's an economic paper from the University of Georgia. And these are very well thought out and in depth, um, thoughtful, uh, university or um, university level research based uh, publications. I don't understand why you would turn a blind eye to something that's showing to be so effective. And I'll tell you that our governor has been really on top of this epidemic here in Arizona. He has collected the data. He's showing that two people today will die, just like two people yesterday will die tomorrow. Um, and he wants to do things to put a stop to it. So he's going to implement a bunch of regulations, including the number of days you can get for um, a, a new prescription. And, and he wants pharmacists to be checking if patients are on benzodiazepines, such as Ativan, Valium, clonazepam, things like that because there's a high correlation of benzodiazepine use with opioid overdose deaths. But he's also recommending things like a Butrans patch, which is another opioid. And the thing that drives me crazy about this is I feel like these commissions are still embedded in um, in the pockets of the pharmaceutical companies. Because if you look at Purdue Pharma, who makes Oxy, okay, and has paid over $600 million in fines for misleading the medical community and for misbehavior. There were even indictments of its executives. Purdue Pharma, that same company, makes the Butrans patch that our governor is hawking now. But yet cannabis isn't okay. I, I don't get that. And I think you need to really follow the money on a lot of this stuff in the government. Yeah. Um, it's shameful. And what are we going to do now with all of our opioid-dependent patients who we don't want overdosing and death? they're just going to join the ranks of Suboxone-dependent patients. And it's it's hard to get, we get patients off of Suboxone here at Blue Door, it's very difficult. Yeah, they need a yeah. lot of hand-holding, they need a lot of attention, they need a lot of support, and then you look at access. Access reimbursement for these services is abysmal, which is why those patients who are the most needy patients in our state aren't getting the care that they need. If the governor really wanted to help with the opioid dependence problem there would be support for access patients, to, for their physicians to get reimbursed for these services, and then they will get better care. But if you, if you pay a physician $20 for, you know, 15 minutes with this patient, you know, first of all, they need more than 15 minutes, and second of all, the physician needs more than $20 to keep the lights on. Mm. So I don't think they get the big picture. And what we actually wanted to do here at, at Blue Door was, to have, We were tossing around the idea of having like a Facebook challenge and just say, submit your stories of what you, how this epidemic has touched you. What do you need, people? What do you need for support from your government? There are all these opioid councils. Are they talking to patients? Or are they just looking at numbers and statistics and talking to the pharmaceutical companies, and I sound very bitter about that, I understand, but it's very frustrating
1: no i'm I'm right there and with I'm, you i I'm and I want to well. get this
3: data to the governor and I want to get this data to the president and say, this is what the people need. They don't need suboxone. they need resources in other ways. I think I have a pretty good idea because I'm in the trenches, I do this every day. I talk to these patients every day, and um they're not listening to, to the right information. They're not listening to what the patients need. They're not providing resources in the right, in the right way. And I'm looking for um, grants for my patients to be able to get services. Obama said he put a billion dollars towards the opioid epidemic. And our governor has put whatever he said he's putting towards the opioid epidemic, a lot of money. Well, where is that money going? Right. It's not translating into benefit for the patients.
1: Yes. So yeah. it's
3: very frustrating on our end.
1: Yeah, I I can imagine from from your perspective it is. There's such a huge lobby in this state, and for people who are not here in Arizona, access actually is uh, equivalent of the Medicaid program in other states uh, like Medi-Cal in California, and um, you know it's it's the uh, I guess the the supplemental. Um, the Cannabis Reporter will be have right back. So uh, it it is. It's very, very frustrating, and it's it's near maddening to to feel as though government officials who are making decisions about these things or or having power to veto measures, and they're just not looking at the Are you listening
0: to the Cannabis in Reporter the Radio US, Show with, with Snowden Bishop. The
3: they're all in the U.S. Okay. These are studies about, the three studies that I mentioned that show a decrease in opioid overdose deaths when medical marijuana is available and accessible to patients were all done based on, the United, on medical marijuana programs in the United States. And they were all published. Again, the first one I, I said was published by the Journal of the American Medical Association, but it was focused in this country. The second was the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a government, I guess, think tank. I, I don't really know how to characterize it. And then the third is the University of Georgia.
1: So there really is no, no excuse from an American official's point of view. To denounce that science or whatever. I mean, the, often the excuse you hear is that there are no acceptable medical studies here in the U.S. when you're talking mm-hmm. about any kind of regulatory change, and um, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to you know the Department of Justice and descheduling cannabis for medical use, at least, mm-hmm. or even hemp mm-hmm. for that matter. For <laughs> it's just it boggles my mind that that people are still saying that. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, for, for a lot of conditions, there really hasn't been enough study done in the U.S. that's palatable to the Department of Justice or to the Food and Drug Administration. But
3: Well, can I tell you a little story that directly involves all those
1: uh, institutions? Please.
3: So in uh, the 1980s, there was a pharmaceutical company who was able to get permission from the DEA um, and the FDA, a government- organizations to produce a medication called dronabinol or marinol.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: This is isolated pure THC made in the lab, not brought, not from the plant, but the compound is the same. The chemical THC is the same no matter if you make it in a lab or if you get it from the plant. Okay. It's different when you get it from the plant because there are other things in the plant, the entourage effect. But if we're focusing on THC being such a bad player and so dangerous, right? So dangerous. They made a pill called Dronabinol or Marinol, and they distributed distributed it as a a Schedule II drug. They got permission to downgrade the schedule of this particular medication to Schedule II. And it was FDA approved for nausea and vomiting associated with chemotherapy. This drug was on the market for 10 years before it was reevaluated by the DEA. And what they found was that there was not a problem with addiction or diversion or abuse of this drug. And so they allowed it to be downgraded yet again to a Schedule 3. So you can buy pure THC at your local pharmacy. I have a blog about it I will send to you, Snowden. And you can buy it legally right now. So if THC is so bad and there's no medicinal benefit to it, how did it get the FDA approved? And why was it downgraded from a Schedule 2 to a Schedule 3 drug after 10 years of data on it?
1: Compelling question.
3: I would love to hear how they can justify that. But the the reality of the government is they don't have to justify it. They don't really answer to anybody, despite the illusion that we have (laughs) some control of our elected representatives.
1: Yeah. Well, it it really, again, follow the money, right? Because, you know, I think that people are fearful for their jobs (laughs) when they're making making decisions on a legislative level. You know, it's... Mm -hmm. Because we have such a, a oh the system our electoral system is is in desperate need of repair if nothing else but yeah money I think talks louder than common sense or science even it, it There's is no
3: other way that you can you can make that scenario
1: work yeah but see this is why it's so important for everyone to just keep talking about it. You know, and I'm, I'm so happy to see that you're out there uh, sharing the presentation that um, I've seen a couple of times recently it, to really just get out there and educate people about about the uses, the, the medical utility, but also the safety and uh, efficacy of that utility. It, it just, it, that cannot be denied. And I think that the more that people learn about this, the more pressure they're going to be able to, apply to their lawmakers their representatives in Congress and if it becomes important enough like families who do have children who are suffering with devastating illnesses that pharmaceuticals just can't help and cannabis will help like the epilepsy children for example you know I think mm-hmm. if, if more you know once more people start experiencing the miracle of medical marijuana This does translate into pressure on lawmakers, but I don't know. And uh, I think with the opiate crisis, too, we have a really good opportunity as long as as long as places like the Blue Door can can actually convince enough people to uh, participate and share their experiences and that sort of thing. and I think your, mm-hmm. chal- your Facebook challenge is actually a really interesting one. And uh, there are probably a lot of people who wouldn't want to share that openly. So is is mm-hmm. the contest open to people who are sharing privately as well?
3: And we're working on the how it's going to be executed because there is a lot of sensitivity out there about um there's, a, there's shame and stigma that goes along with this.
1: Um, but yeah, not families, to mention a lack of post- job security if they admit to having drugs in their system and that sort of thing.
3: Right. Well, what we would like to do for anybody who doesn't want their name or photo exposed, um, to just they can send it to us. We haven't figured out how, how we're going to get them to do it. We're just working through the logistics of it right now. Mm-hmm. But they can send the story to us and it can be posted anonymously.
1: Yeah, I I would love to follow this uh, with you because I'd, I'd be happy to publicize it as well Thank once you sure. start doing it because, I mean, I think that like the, the Me Too movement that's happening right now, it, it seems mm-hmm. like the more people speak out, the more the stigma and shame of whatever it is, whatever issue it is, comes out of the shadows, you know, and you shine light on it and it's no longer shameful in a way.
3: There's a... There's a documentary called The Anonymous People that is um, a a real short uh, documentary. I think you can get it on Amazon Prime. But it's about the recovery community. And the recovery community is um, a lot of times centered around anonymous meetings. And in contrast, what they say in the documentary is if you look at the HIV AIDS movement of the 1990s, those folks were not anonymous. They were on the front lawn of the capitol, right and they were putting together a quote of all their loved ones' names, and they were marching in the streets and they were hollering, and the stigma did go away for the most part. and but those folks got help because they weren't anonymous and they were speaking out and they were showing their faces and they you know, stigma be damned, here I am, I need help. You need to recognize me. that population of folks who were initially um, really impacted by the HIV-AIDS epidemic were, you know, thankfully for for that epidemic, very vocal, um, despite the stigma and shame that went along with it. And I think that transformation needs to happen yeah. in the recovery space.
1: I think to you're really right about that. Yeah, I think you're right about that, too, because I've known um, several people who have lost loved ones to uh, mm-hmm. opiate abuse, and they did not, for the life of them, want... Um, their neighbors and friends and colleagues and people to know why their loved one died. And I find that tragic mm-hmm. because. For for the folks
3: listening on the radio, for whoever hears this, your neighbors and friends are also going through it. They're not talking about it either,
1: Yeah. but they
3: are going through it. If you bring it up at a dinner party, it's amazing how many people are touched by it and we need to start speaking out. we have a patient here, just an amazing lady. And we were doing a media spot. It's on our, it's on our website. And um, she, we said, you know, we can fuzz out your face and change your voice. And she thought about it. She thought, of it. she said, no, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of what I did and I'm healthier now and I'm better and I'm through it. And she's in her seventies. Um, and she said, I'm not going to show my face and I'm going to, because I'm not ashamed of what I did. And then I was just like, tears to my eyes, you know, I was just so touched by her. Um, but I think we need more of that.
1: Yeah. Well, and the same goes for for people who have been self-medicating, who just wouldn't admit it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've had uh, uh, Marvin Washington on the show a number of times. He's a, um, a former NFL player who w- calls it the green closet. And there have been a lot of people who are now beginning to speak out about it, which is why I think the movement is, is really coming along. And especially when public figures do it, you know, when someone <laughs> comes out of that, um, out of the shadows to explain why they, why they feel that cannabis has helped them. And especially now that some of the states are, are making it legal for people with or without like medical licenses, it's, it really helps um, for them not to uh, be afraid to speak out. But by mm-hmm. hearing these public figures speak out, it, it makes people realize, okay, this is not something that is a shameful movement. If somebody needs to medicate with cannabis, this is not a bad thing. And it helps them understand mm-hmm. that. And I think addiction, you know, it's, it's not their fault. And, you know, how can you convey that, you know, aside from doing what we're doing today, which is just letting people know. But I think you're right. You have to you have to get you have to start talking yourself and then get your neighbors to talk with you. You know,
3: I was talking to a reporter and I I made a comment about how people look at opioid dependence um, as a moral failing of somehow you don't have a strong enough constitution to have been able to fight off to fight off that problem. You know, you're weak somehow. And he looked at me and he was kind of like, well, it kind of is, isn't it? And I said, I can, I can get you addicted to opioids. I can write you enough prescriptions that you will get addicted to opioids. If you think that you are immune to this problem, then you are selling yourself short. If you just, you, then you don't understand neuroanatomy. You don't understand neurochemistry. You don't understand what these things do to the brain. And you're right. It is not the patient's fault. It is not the person's fault. Some people may take a little bit longer than others, but I was like, I can guarantee I can addict you. Yeah. Let me get my prescription pad out. Trust me, I can do it. How strong do you think you are? You want
1: to try? <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> that would that would be a, you know, a It's pretty- not
3: about your constitution or how, you know, pulling you up or yourself up by your bootstraps or, I mean, it has nothing to do with that. It has the, to do with you are you, you know, you are a, a big chemistry experiment in a big Petri dish with a bunch of chemicals coursing through you, you know, and you know, how those interact and what you add into that are going to determine what your outcome is. But, you know, we're all made up of that kind of a system.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's not a moral failing. It's not a weakness. It's,
1: Yeah. And I think that that has everything to do with the fact that opiate addiction has taken so long to make headlines too, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. because it's like, Oh, it's the others who are weak. I think that that's a a common opinion of people.
3: Right. And I've seen that comment on some uh, social media boards of, you know, let those junkies die. There's that opinion out there. Those people should just not be listened to. Um, but it's hard sometimes to ignore them if they're in your face and social media or whatever. But um, there's really a, an, a, you know, those people are weak and they've done something bad and this is their punishment somehow that that's, somehow that's okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, there was yeah. A,
3: a city council person in Ohio who wanted to have like a a three strikes rule on getting the reversal drug, n- drug uh, Narcan. Yeah, that if you run on a patient more than twice, then you just leave them and you don't resuscitate them.
1: Are (laughs) you serious? Is this our,
3: yeah? Is this our Christian uh, dominant country? uh, (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? You would just let somebody die because you don't want to spend money on Narcan on them, but you also don't want to spend resources to to help that person earlier on in the process, or so it's. It's, it's crazy with the mentality that's out there, but people need to know who are struggling or who have a problem that there are people, more people, I think, that support them, maybe not as vocal, but that support them, support what they're doing, support their um, getting better and support their use of cannabis. Because most of these folks, families would rather have their, their loved one using cannabis for a period of time than dead. And that's <laughs> yeah. really what a lot of these folks are looking at. You know, if it's your family member, maybe they'll think a little bit differently about that. But, um, you know, sometimes that is the option. If you can have somebody who's struggling pick up CBD or pick up a vape pen, you know, maybe that's not ideal, but they're not going to overdose and die.
1: Right. Yeah. And and as many doctors (coughs) as I've spoken with on this on this program, uh, every one of them says the same thing. Cannabis has never killed anyone ever. In contrast right. that to 200,000 deaths since 2000 just for opiates. And, I mean, okay. clearly <laughs> we have a problem here. It's mm-hmm. yeah. right. Wow. Well, you know what? I think that, um, you know, there's still so much work to be done in terms of the education and all of that. What's next for you and the Blue Door right now? Are Our you planning to expand it?
3: Absolutely. Our goal is to um, get all of our processes down in this clinic here, which we have in Scottsdale, um, and then open up another clinic or two in the state and then go to every state that has a medical marijuana law on the books and continue to spread the message and continue to spread the support. We do offer a lot more than cannabis, but it is important that all of the message gets out that folks who need help need a lot more than a 15 minute doctor appointment every month yeah. and yeah. canvas can be life saving for these folks and all of the other things that we offer, which include counseling, which is critical for a lot of these patients. Um, we have an EQ program, which is emotional intelligence, which helps patients and their families with um, coping skills um, to get through this process. And the family is also critical because they're going through it too. Um, and so we involve families as, as, at any point that we can here, because they're so important to our patient's health. Um, acupuncture, massage, meditation, mindfulness, et cetera, all of those things together are really helpful for our patients. And so we want to get that out across the country.
1: Yeah. Well, it's so important. And you don't do any inpatient help right now, but are you planning to in the future?
3: We're really keeping our eye on how many people are calling, getting that level of care. It is a definitely higher level of care, and we can't provide care to all patients who need, um, who need to get off of opioids. Some need to go inpatient. Some need a higher level of care than we can provide. Um, so we don't see patients who have polysubstance abuse because it's a lot more complicated. Um, So that means if they're using opioids and in addition using methamphetamine, cocaine, alcohol, et cetera, those are more complicated to tease out and make sure that patient gets the right level of care. It's not not on an outpatient basis with us. We don't see pregnant patients because pregnant patients should not be taken off of opioids. Um, That's very dangerous during the pregnancy. And a lot of times pregnant patients need to go up on their level of opioids because their volume of distribution increases as you get through the tri- third trimester. So those patients need more specialty care. Um, pediatrics, we don't see. That's more complicated. Um, so there are a few people that, that we don't see here um, and who need inpatient. But we're keeping our eye on all those patient populations and seeing down the road if there's a way that we can accommodate them.
1: This is a fantastic resource, and it, it seems as though this can't help but really grow. And I think that as more and more patients go through therapy with you, they will tell their friends. You know, if, if it's working, people will learn about it. And I mean, all we can do is really get out there and just keep spreading the word. And I think it's phenomenal. And I'm very excited to just keep following what you're doing and seeing how you're able to convince lawmakers. And we've got so much work ahead of us. Dr. Berman, I, th- I think that what you're doing is amazing and I'd like to post some of your articles and and work up on our site as well so that people can actually learn more about it. And I think it's just important and so many people definitely have have this is. issue and it's a it's a it's definitely a common problem but it's a crisis at this point with so many yeah, so many lives being lost. It's it's really pretty scary but i'm getting a signal that it is just about time to wrap it up so any lost thoughts uh that you'd like people to know
3: i think I, I just appreciate you having me on so that we can continue to get the word out to um people who may be struggling that there is help for them and there are resources for them and there's a support um for those folks and that you know that's important to, to talk about these things. So I appreciate you providing the platform to really get the word out there. Um, It it is a critical time for, for this country to deal with this issue.
1: Yeah. And I think that um, it's, it's as important as so many other issues right now that the truth actually breaks through all of the noise that's happening because a lot of special interests are, are preventing the truth from prevailing here and, you know, and I, I do encourage people if, if, if they are struggling, if they or someone they know are struggling with addiction or recovery, and have a story to share, I really encourage them to um, go ahead and, and look you up and and participate in your Facebook request. So, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. That would
3: be the more people we can get to participate and yell from the top of the rooftops that we're here, we have a story, we're important. This is what we need. Our our elected representatives need to know what our patients need, need to know what people struggling with opioid dependence need so that they we can get the correct resources to those people.
1: Yeah. And they need to know it's yeah. working too what you're doing is yeah. working and that the science backs it up. It's not just you know, a bunch of hippies sitting on the couch getting high in place <laughs> of doing <laughs> heroin. <laughs> so, right. Right. yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's really pretty phenomenal. So we'll definitely post some information uh, and you should feel free to just send me whatever you have too because I think the more information we get out there, the better it is for just about everyone. So with that, Dr. Berman, thank you so much for being here.
3: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and and we will talk again soon, I am sure. So um, once again, personal thank you to Dr. Gina Berman for sharing her insights and knowledge with us today. And if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction and want to learn more about the ways in which cannabis therapy can help with recovery, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click broadcast to find today's episode, and I will post her bio along with information about the Blue Door and a link to her website. We have a lot of people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Meds and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly could not be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He'll be back again next week with another edition. Eric Godall is the composer of our theme song, Evergreen. We appreciate that. Our producer and engineer here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine. To our program director, Steve at XRQK Radio Network and to all of you for listening around the nation. We hope you'll join us again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.
0: Every green is calling, Every green is always waiting. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. You're busy. Running around from work to kids to evening events, healthcare shouldn't be adding to your daily running around. Simplify your healthcare with Helterra. For only $15 per month per individual or $18 per month per family with up to nine kids, by the way, you can eliminate doctor office visits with 24 7 access to doctors via phone, video, or the mobile app. Not only do you get prescriptions filled over the phone, but save up to 85% on those prescriptions. This is a supplemental plan and not insurance. Healthcare made easy. Helterra.com.